Right. All right. Well, welcome to our second attempt to record this episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is not. This is not an easy one. This is complicated. Ah. Uh, um, and you'll see why. Uh, so, in this episode, uh, we wanted to conclude season one by talking about the socio-economic elephant in the room. We've talked about elephants and elements before in previous episodes of this podcast, but mm-hmm. this is this is, I think, uh, the one that I feel at least is the pretty much the most important one to have. Well, it contextualizes the whole thing of what we've been talking about. It does. I mean, if we don't have an understanding or at least an acknowledgement of these problems, Hmm. then any sort of advice that we give out when it comes to nutrition is going to be, uh, you know, problematic. Yeah, or, 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 or even any dialogue that we try to have around, you know, kind of what needs to be done. And everyone's obviously got opinions in that respect is having a conversation just at the wrong level (laughs) about the wrong issues that ultimately don't matter. Like we can argue till the cows come home about, you know, how much carbohydrate someone eats or, you know, whether we need to eat more fat or less fat and all this stuff, but it just doesn't make a difference Mm. because at the end of the day, we have a diet pattern in the quote Western industrialized world, that is fairly homogenous. That is the same across in terms of its macronutrient composition in the UK as it is in Australia, as it is in the States, as it is in Ireland. So why is that? What's the output factor? What's the food supply issues that influence this? And then what are the social, economic, and, and obviously environmental determinants? that make this diet pattern not only so ubiquitous, but so difficult to shift uh, and address. Yeah, because we talked in the last episode about the fact that actually within nutritional science, we do we do know quite a fair amount of stuff in terms of what, what constitutes, in quotes, a healthy diet. Mm-hmm. We, we understand what ideally we should be eating on a broad sense uh, to kind of improve our overall health, to kind Mm -hmm. of reduce our risk of certain things. Um, But the question is, is can can we just therefore just tell people that that i mean why is that not working why can we if we know this as a fact like if we know that the majority let's say of our unsaturated fat should come from plant sources Mm -hmm. why is that not happening right is this you know is it is it what you commonly see online and commonly see within the discussions just a matter of uh, a lack of education Mm -hmm. uh or is it a lack of personal responsibility yeah is is it a lack of prioritizing is it Mm -hmm. you know when all of this and we'll talk about that kind of when we start making this a personal responsibility on the on on the individual which within your own subset of of socioeconomic class you could have an element of um but in general if that's the if that's the way we're framing all of these conversations where it's just oh it's okay because i'll just tell you how to improve your diet and then you'll do it and it'll be fine right um but we're ignoring all of the barriers that there are in in place that get put in place through right. no fault of somebody, right. no no fault of their own, yeah. um, but are just there. And if we're ignoring all of those... If it was a matter of personal responsibility, then we are saying that the 17-year difference in disability-free life expectancy in the UK, so 17 years 
is the difference between people living without a major illness in between the most socially deprived areas and the most socially advantaged areas, then we're saying that those people, that difference boils down to personal responsibility. Mm. It's just that they fault. live 17 years less because it's their fault. Yeah. And I think that morally, ethically, uh, and in every other sense of how we could assess this, that's a fairly bankrupt argument to make. Yeah. Um, and we can look at that disparity within a society. We can look at it between societies. Um, it, these issues are bigger than nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, we can get lost in, in focusing on nutrition. Nutrition is one element of these wider factors. We're not going to disentangle all of them today. We couldn't if we tried. We want to do, you know, we want to try to keep the focus on nutritional aspects of mm. this conversation. Um, but in doing so, you know, it's impossible not to touch on some of these political factors and, yeah. and, and, the, and the wealth disparity thing. Well, speaking of the wealth disparity, uh, it, it's quite, for people who are at least starting to talk about this kind of stuff, right? it's quite common to see uh, a conversation take place purely about money. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's all well and good to to think that if we just increase the wealth then it will increase health mm -hmm. and and to some extent it does yeah there is um evidence to show that increasing the wealth of a country overall increases everyone's health mm -hmm. but that only works up to a point and then it starts to level off mm -hmm. and after that you've then got the societies and the countries that reduce the inequality the most that continue to improve health exactly. and there's some uh, we were talking before this or maybe in the last recording about the, uh, about the fact that yeah. our life expectancy here what On was average it? Was so so when you improve if a country is the kind of low middle income country if you improve the overall wealth of that country you'll see population wide improvements in in health yeah. outcomes as well but the factors that seem to underpin that are things like increased um, sanitation, security in the food supply, decreased race, rates of infant mortality, which then brings the overall life expectancy of the population up, mm. um, improved uh, built environment, electricity, you know, and these kind of variables. They're obviously not necessarily issues in developed countries or high income countries. So what you tend to see then after that initial improvement of those variables is that leveling off. And then you see that countries that increase the disparity in, in health and wealth, and it's not just, when we say wealth, it's not just monetary mm -hmm. wealth. We're talking about different variables. But the greater the wealth disparity then can actually have a negative effect on these on, on, on health because you're looking at chronic lifestyle diseases. <sighs> so in the UK, if we look at Chelsea Kensington, average life expectancy of a man is 88 years of age. Down the road in Tottenham Green, you've got an li average life expectancy of 71 years. You've got this massive discrepancy within a, a, sh a, a short time place. Yeah. So the other interesting, and I've, I've, I've posted this before from the Marmot Report, is for, for every tube stop from Westminster to Canning Town, life expectancy decreases by one year per tube stop. Yeah. So, so if we ignore all of these, if we ignore and we just this. and we just and we and we're talking about nutrition like it's the be all and the end all of right. this stuff, 
it, it, we're being willing, willing, willingly willing, ignorant willfully, about this yeah. stuff. Willfully, there you go. Whatever word. Take six million of this podcast. Right. I'll get the word right. But but, <laughs> but the point you said about 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 it's not just monetary wealth is really important yeah. because if we look at then average life expectancy in the UK is sixty seven. That average life expectancy is the same as Thailand and Egypt, and it's lower than the life expectancy in China, Belize, and Ecuador, which I don't think many people in the UK would think. And all of those are countries that have lower gross domestic product than the UK. And also they're countries that don't have a nationalized healthcare system. And so when you look at it through that lens, a, a much more complicated picture emerges. The UK is a wealthier country than these countries, maybe maybe not China anymore necessarily overall, yeah, but, yeah. but the overall in the population, the overall per GDP per capita will be. Yeah. Um, so, and the UK has a national healthcare system. And yeah, yet, our life expectancy is no better. Is no better. And also the rates of chronic lifestyle disease are significantly higher. Mm. So... This is a complicated yeah. issue. And we don't have the answer to that. There are lots of elements at play there, and we're not going to try and guess the answers to no. that. But it's just, it's stuff that is worth being aware of. Yeah. That this isn't just as simple as, you know, well, if I just post on Instagram that everyone should eat more fruit and veg, I'll save the world. It, right. You know, it's not as simple as that. that that's that's the arrogance element, I think, of of, you know, for healthcare professionals for people in professions that have a, a role in this broad space, policy, mm. you know, um, medical care. So we're talking about law, medicine, and these kind of professions. They're privileged professions. People tend to come from a, a, a certain yeah, sociodemographic yeah, yeah. background. They've probably gone to a private school. They've certainly gone to tertiary education. Mm. And so we have these conversations that kind of focus on these almost like missing the point issues. And I've often said, kind of as my thinking's evolved on these issues, you know, if you look at, say, a lot of the conversations in medicine now, you know, it's, it's very much this like, how can we, and it's not that we shouldn't improve health advice for individuals, but everyone focusing on that, like, oh, we'll, 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 you know, we'll reverse these trends through education, you know, doctors in nutrition, for example, and then they'll pass on the message in their clinic. No, like that's not, it's, it still should be done, but actually medicine, law, and other powerful professions with political connections would be better off actually directing their muscle upstream for policy change. I mean, that's Um, us sharing an opinion, but it's an opinion I agree with you on. Um, and, uh, and, and I mean, you know, even objectively, what we're doing so far isn't working. Um, it's not changing the inequality. It's not changing the, the, the life expectancy disparity. I mean, even, even when we, you know, I was something I was thinking of when you were talking about the fact that money isn't the only issue, you know, the fact that there's a North South divide in the UK, which not a lot of people necessarily know about Mm -hmm. the fact that your life expectancy is lower, the further you live up North in the UK, right? Even if you earn Even the same amount, the same socioeconomic status. Yeah. So if yeah. there's somebody up north earning forty thousand pounds a year versus someone in London earning forty thousand pounds a year, right? The person's life expectancy up north will be lower, right? And it's not just so it's not just money mm, here either. No, there are so many different barriers to nutrition, um, rather and than health. just and yeah. to health in general. Yeah, yeah, that that aren't purely down yeah. to money. 
And, and, and when it comes to nutrition and, and, and kind of public health, when it comes to public health generally, there's, there's generally two approaches. We can talk about downstream interventions, which focus on the individual, individual mm-hmm. level behavior change. And we can focus on upstream interventions where we're focusing on policy regulation um, and those kind of uh, industry level interventions. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that we scrap downstream interventions, but unless we're modifying the environment in people's favor through upstream interventions, expecting personal responsibility with no environmental modification is a bit of a joke in terms of what we know. Yeah. So people are not like, you know, the, the idea that we're helpless is not the case. Because again, you know, not everyone in, in any circumstance, people that have the most advantaged in life may still get diabetes, you know, and, and people that have, you know, are born into areas of complete social deprivation may not. And so it's not just this linear split along socioeconomic lines. Mm. The point is, though, that the health and wealth inequalities make it increasingly more difficult for people to actually engage and access behaviors that might reduce chronic disease risk. So if we're not modifying the environment by upstream interventions, the downstream interventions will largely be ineffectual. Well, that's exactly what we see when it comes to what's known as the inequality paradox, right? Right. So um, providing the opportunity to access these these things, so to access more fruit and veg, for example. Mm-hmm. Providing the opportunity to people to access that is all well and good. It's not. I'm not saying it's instinctively a bad thing, mm-hmm. but that intervention ends up being taken up by the middle classes in the end. Right. And so you can provide access to an intervention, but in the end it actually ends up widening the inequality. The right. only because people, people that, that already have the means and accessibility and time yeah. to to take to avail of that opera. And it's you're you're correct. Um there was a paper in two thousand and seven by an American researcher at Tulane University who has published widely on these kind of determinants. And it was quite interesting because you'll get a lot of suggestions that, oh, well, we could subsidize fruits and vegetables in in low-income areas. But the problem is it doesn't matter if they're made available. There are other barriers. Yeah, so let's take that further. So let's go, um, so let's stick on fruit and veg mm-hmm. and let's kind of address or bring up, again, we don't have the solutions to these, but, but we need to have the knowledge of them. Um, let's bring up some of the barriers to fruit and veg consumption. Um, so... I mean, number one is the actual physical availability to buy cheap fruit and veg. Which is non-existent in certain areas, particularly in urban, um, low-income, low-socioeconomic status areas, which are now classified in many respects, quote-unquote, as a food desert. Yeah, and Um, some people like to deny that that's a thing. I don't really understand why. It's it's not that it's denied, but some of the, the kind of more privileged narratives I've seen is that you know, even if someone doesn't have public transport and lives in a food desert, they can still get the bus, you know, to a market and buy this. To- and it's just <laughs> go to a farmer's market. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, yeah. So, so food deserts is a real thing. Is a thing. Supermarkets are businesses in the end. And so supermarkets aren't going to be built within deprived areas of the country 
because that's not a smart business decision. No. Um, so and one of the things that we do know on that, um, and people can look at um, public health documents, public health England documents, and there was one that models the density of fast food outlets in areas relative to social deprivation. And there was a linear association between the density of fast food outlets and the level of social deprivation. Mm. Um, in some cases, we were talking about up to 199 outlets per 100,000 heads of the population. Wow. So we're talking about an incredible density of food. And when I talk about a homogenous Western diet in, in its characteristics of fat, carbohydrate, refined sugar, refined starch, low fiber, high sodium, and all of these variables. This is how that's possible at a population level. Because although there is an appearance of, 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 of option between your KFC and your McDonald's, actually kind of when you add that all up, really at, at a kind of macro level, they're quite similar in terms mm, of mm. their and composition. We're not, and we're not saying that the fast food restaurants are the cause of this problem but it's but it, they're factors and they are well they're they're symptoms of where we're at with this can only happen because of the the kind of economic doctrine of of neoliberalism or in the UK it's known as conservative libertarianism and so it's this economic doctrine of the free market deciding and the within that we have transnational food and beverage corporations that are capable of penetrating a market, completely drastically reducing the price of food, um, increasing the availability of that food, creating and engineering that food in such a way that it is of a certain palatability. Mm. And that is a triumph, <laughs> and I use yeah. the word triumph pejoratively, <laughs> of massive energy availability for very little cost mm. and that is placed strategically in areas of the most social deprivation because you're talking about in a in a relative purchasing parity uh people that by nature in terms of one's other variables like rent and stuff are available there is there is le often and this is a barrier one of the barriers we're talking about, limited available resources for food purchasing in the household. So the household food purchasing power is actually quite low. So by default, uh, a KFC bucket meal deal for four, for £4.99 becomes not just appealing in terms of the volume of food, but actually a necessity. And we're, this idea that there is a personal choice in this equation to opt for that or... Uh, go and do a big vegetable and fruit shop is is just to absolutely ignore all of these all of these economic determinants. So that's a common thing that I see as well is uh, you'll have a an Instagram post of a comparison between the price of a KFC bucket right and the price of making the meals from scratch mm -hmm. and there'll be a justification that actually this is cheaper to make the meals by by scratch. Mm -hmm. So. You're, you're if just you're Jamie Oliver. You're just choosing the wrong thing. <laughs> well, that's well. Then then it's, that goes then we're back, back to, to food preparation. Skills. The, yeah. Then we then we go back to to when we were talking about the different barriers to eating more fruit and veg. Mm -hmm. So we we talked about access itself. So mm -hmm. food deserts themselves. Um, there's often a massive um, emphasis on education 
And my personal opinion is I think that that becomes very moralistic when you talk about that. Education is is an an element. It is a factor. There is going to be an element of the the knowledge of how to cook certain foods and the knowledge of how to make certain things. The knowledge of cooking is is food preparation skills. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the knowledge of what is or isn't good for someone in the broadest sense. And one thing that's often lacking in nutrition research um, that we could maybe take if we if we look at nutrition more as a social science, which in many respects is becoming, is the human voice, is is qualitative research. And um I remember when the when the Eat Lancet report came out, I I I took quotes from some qualitative research that I thought were quite powerful to mm. show why it was such a classist pile of nonsense in the first place. Well, just um, to clarify, because I, I know what that is, but some people won't know exactly uh, the Eat Lancet. The, okay, so, so the Eat Lancet was a, a foundation called Eat um, that uh, developed um, a diet. Planetary that they said, diet, was Yeah, they called it the planetary health diet Um that was a largely plant-based, um, you know, you could have seven grams of meat a day, 49 grams a week, um, and an egg, and maybe 200 grams of dairy. And so, but but you had to shop more, at farmer's markets. Yes, one of the, was, yes. Was, was, one of, actually was actually one of the recommendations was people can do this if they shop at farmer's market and here are all these delicious meals you can make at the home. So it was an entirely classist document that had mm. very moralistic overtones of not only can you save the planet, but you can also save yourself if you yeah. eat this way, if you're fortunate, privileged enough to do so. So I had a lot of problems with it and I referred a lot to qualitative research to, to try and give some human voice to this. And one of the one of the consistent things you see in qualitative research when it when it when it you know examines these social demographic issues is that people in low socioeconomic areas know fucking fruits and vegetables are good for them. Yeah. It's this it's like so when it comes back to that, it's this assumption that people are fucking stupid if they're socially disadvantaged. It's it's such classist nonsense, and we need to move away from that rhetoric. Like people know fruits and vegetables. Line ten people up against a wall now. I certainly eight are going to know that vegetables least, and fruit yeah. are good for them. They're not going to say, the they're, not going to say they're bad for you unless right. they're doing some sort of carnivore diet. Yeah, at the moment. And, and if ever anything was privileged, it's a carnivore <laughs> diet, right? But the barriers as to why and, and, and how people cannot affect this stuff, again, have nothing to do with nutrition. So one of the, one of the variables with fruit and vegetables is that they're perishable. Yep. They're yep. really quickly perishable. Mm. So if you have, even if you have a degree of food preparation skills in, in a low-income household, the, 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 the priority is to not have food that essentially could be money wasted if you buy this stuff and then it goes off and spoils. Yeah. So again, the, the free markets of the scenario cater to this. You can see some really interesting papers that look at you know, the composition and contents of what's in a supermarket or a store again, relative to different levels of social deprivation in an area. Yeah. And, and so you will go into supermarkets or, or, or you know, food retail outlets in socially deprived areas, and it's just literally all canned, packaged, and, and shelf-life extendable uh, goods options. Hmm. So, you know, that's another factor that then plays into the nutritional quality and otherwise of the diet. But actually, one of the, one of the real constant 
barriers that that seems to come through the literature in this in this area is time yeah La- time lack of yeah. time and you so you might have people that are so, working more than one job exactly so for us for us who are giving out this kind of information as you said earlier and i'm glad that you did you know we typically especially doctors come from a higher socioeconomic class to begin with that's not something that is uh, necessarily a fault it's just a fact yeah you can't um, pick and your so parents like, we're we... not we're not assigning <laughs> blame here to people that were born into more advantaged circumstances as much as we're not assigning blame no. to someone but that's... but so but so within that i, I don't i you know I, the most i've ever I, i've never worked two jobs at the same time like right. that's i i worked which again ironically was probably more than a lot of the people I went to medical school with did, but I worked to earn money whilst I was at medical school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked in a in an electronics store uh, to to help pay for rent whilst I was at medical school. Um, a lot of my peers uh, didn't have to do that, right? Um, so I I I have actually worked in a quote unquote normal job, but I have no idea what it's like to work three jobs. No. I have no, I don't, I don't have any kids, mm-hmm. so I have no idea what it's like to work multiple to jobs bring ho- to bring to kids. bring food home, yes. to bring money home, to pay rent, to pay for right. you know if if everything if if shit hits the fan, everything falls through, I can move back in with my mum. Like it's yeah. like that that in itself yeah, is a privilege. Security, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's you've the so us having these conversations, we have no real personal no. insight or understanding of what no. it's really like not to have the time. Exactly. We think we don't have right. time. We love to complain. Yeah, <laughs> the well, middle no class yeah. love to complain that yeah. we don't have time. But we have time to watch a whole series of Game of Thrones. On, right. on, do, you, do you see what I mean? Right. So it's, exactly. we do have this time. Yeah. And that's, I think, a lot of where uh, some, it, some of this information and some of this rhetoric around you just need to prioritize your health mm. comes from within our own right class in a sense that it's like if you have the if you have the ability to to watch a whole season on netflix and you have the ability to to spend some time preparing food for lunch the next day that's true but we're talking to the people who have the ability to watch a series on netflix yeah and And they're they're not the people who are at the worst health they're not the people who are eating the least fruit and veg in the first place and we we, i think we said this in the the last attempt at this but (laughs) You know, when you see certainly in in kind of you know, wider conversations online, and when you see a lot of the really strongly held opinions about personal responsibility, yeah. they tend to come from the fitness industry, yeah. people's who whose whole life. <laughs> is exercising, meal prepping, working in a gym, seem to think that, well, I can do this. Everyone else can too. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a really difficult, um, you know, narrative to try and disentangle. Because well, it's much it's, more comfortable to shift responsibility. Right. It's much more comfortable for it to be someone else's responsibility but to do something about it. When you get into these conversations, actually... The idea of focusing on these social determinants of health gets labeled as liberal, uh, weak, enabling. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And yeah. actually, that's get, that that is all of this is accused of shifting responsibility yeah. you, by focusing on the environment, by focusing on socio-economic and environmental determinants. You're shifting the responsibility away yeah. from the person, and it's like, which is incredibly which is, ironic incredibly <laughs> ironic, <sighs> but also tragic and impossible to unpick. And again, you're, you're, you're uniformly talking about people expressing these opinions from a place of privilege. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and again, to, to, to reiterate for listeners, like as Josh was saying, like n- neither of us have any idea what, what this is like. We're, we're exactly. speaking, we're, we're, we're lifting information from, from research, from papers, and we're articulating and, what and conversations with and conversations. Who, you know, I, I, I have heard, but I don't know what it's like not to own a fridge. Right. I don't know what it's like not to own an oven. I don't know what it's like to have to prioritize food over heating. Right. I don't and, and I'm or, not or or vice versa. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not you know, I'm not I'm not afraid of acknowledging that. Yeah. I but I but at the same time I know that if I ignore that stuff just because I don't personally know what it's like. Well then we're not having the conversation. No, that's just incredibly no. disrespectful of me to to do that and right. to to pretend that that inequality doesn't exist yeah. yeah and that those difficulties aren't just because those difficulties aren't mine it means that they don't exist and that's right. just not it's just not right yeah yeah absolutely and uh, well it, it's a big barrier to a lot of these kind of wider social conversations now is that uh, i find bizarrely although people talk about these issues with we must you know give a voice to x y z Conversely, there's this very anti-democratic element to these conversations where it's also, but if you, if this isn't firsthand, you can't speak to us. Um, no, we all need to be speaking and we, about we, it. We actually, we what this is about is, is because this is so unspoken about and because these issues that we're talking about are barely in the conversation while everyone is screaming at each other about whether you know, sugar is a toxin or fat does this, that and the other to every aspect of it. It's just nonsense. So we can't come back to having nutrition conversations unless we have conversations about how to solve these issues first. And interestingly, here's a hard truth, I think, for people. If all of this were to absolve in a week, and we were going and, 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 and we woke up in a week to a new society, a fair society, a society with 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 fair, you know, fairly um, equilibrium in terms of like a, a closing of this wealth uh, and health disparity. The dietary advice wouldn't really change that much. <laughs> yeah. So the advice isn't the issue. Everyone's focusing on the advice. It's like, forget about the advice for now. We, we have a huge society wide uh issue that needs to be addressed Mm. um and if we're not having conversations at that level then in many respects it's not that we shouldn't have these conversations at all but it's like can we stop focusing on the stuff that doesn't really matter in the context of the big picture and the big picture is these wider issues i think one one thing i i think actually i i think we can probably bring that to a close roughly i think unless we're going to start speculating on how to fix these which we don't have the ability to no but i think there is one I think I think there is one one important thing to to, to bring in at okay. the end. And I mean, I had one little anecdote as well, which I thought was quite fun. But yeah, this isn't even an anecdote. Oh, this okay. Is, Should I do anecdote first we, and then no, you do do anecdote last because <laughs> I'm just going to continue being depressing. Um, when we when we really step back and and and, and look at this, and I've I've talked a bit about market forces and these kind of issues. Yeah. And 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 I I I, I am. I'm fairly apolitical in my own perspective. I take part as in I vote because I believe it's important in a democracy. But I ultimately think that politicians ultimately, and this is just isn't in the UK, it's in Ireland, like, you know, because of open market capitalist societies, most bright kids go into, 
you know, a profession they can make money in, which generally leaves us with the rich and thick to actually run the country. Um, so I don't have a lot of, <laughs> but I, so what I'm about to express is not necessarily a reflection of my political opinion. It's a reflection of coming back out from a lot of this research with no other alternative in terms of a conclusion. Um, the dominant driving force, we can see this by comparing societies that, that embrace this, this doctrine versus ones that don't appears to be neoliberal economic doctrine, the conservative libertarian approach to completely deregulate society, deregulate everything, let the free market decide. And the countries with that economic doctrine as their core political ideology uh, are the US, the UK and Australia. Uh, Ireland follows closely by, but we don't have the population to, to really compare to. But trends-wise, these are the countries leading the world in chronic lifestyle disease statistics. You compare that to countries with a more social democratic model like the Scandinavian countries, they don't have that wealth disparity. They don't have that health disparity. Mm. They don't have those extreme issues in chronic lifestyle disease. So I'm not saying this as like a left wing, like, oh my God, bring back, you know, communism. I'm saying this as, as a conclusion that is very difficult to ignore from the evidence that exists for the forces driving these issues. And we can see that playing out now when we look at what's known as the nutrition transition in Asia, where transnational food and beverage companies penetrate emerging markets, in, initially using sugar-sweetened beverages as a, as a means to get into the market, um, typically using mergers and acquisitions to buy up local companies, modify the foods that they're going to sell to kind of local cultural factors, and ultimately start to spread this relatively homogenous Western diet pattern in emerging economies. And Asia is the best case study for that. And we can link a, a particular paper that will give people a nice overview of, of these issues. So this is a political issue. It's a reflection of a political ideology and economic doctrine that has been embraced in certain countries in the West. And unless we're acknowledging that, you know, we're again having conversations potentially in the wrong place. So we, we need to, food, I guess, as part of this needs to become a political issue. Mm. And that's that's where I see the conclusions. Um, and it's it's ultimately where I see the fight that needs to be fought is at the level of policy. Yeah. Well, I, I mean... Which means we're fucked because that's not changing. <laughs> <laughs> Without a lot of noise, I guess. Sorry. Um, yeah, all right, grumpy. Uh, <laughs> give us your anecdote, <laughs> make everyone well, was, fucking happy. I, was, again. Well, I don't know if it do, does necessarily make everyone happy, my anecdote, but Ooh, it is just, babies. um, don't no, leave the jelly babies alone, they're just gonna make lots of noise. I think the reason I've got this anecdote that I'd like to, it's not, is it an anecdote? I don't know. This story slash thought process to, to share is just because this is the thing that I heard first that made the most sense to me that made me start questioning a lot of mm. this stuff. Um, and it wasn't necessarily about nutrition, um, but it was uh, a real example of how socioeconomics can, especially socioeconomics of a perspective that we don't have any real experience in, can massively change the health advice that we think is so straightforward right. and so obvious. Um, and, and that's in, I think it's a book called Life's a Drag. It's a book or it's a case study or it's a paper of some kind. Um, it's, it's on Amazon. You can have a look at it. Essentially where they had a look at 
single mothers in areas of social deprivation mm-hmm. um, on council estates. Mm-hmm. And they looked at the health status of single mothers who smoked mm-hmm. versus the health status of single mothers who didn't on this mm-hmm. particular council estate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every everything that I know from from yeah, medical from school, from dark. medicine, from yeah. being a doctor, from, from you know, even not being a doctor, everything that we know says that smoking is bad for your health, right? Mm-hmm. That, that there isn't... You know, I, I couldn't foresee a yeah, situation. There's no nuance in that. No, you know, it's I, like smoking yeah, is bad for I, you. I, I couldn't foresee a situation where smoking wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this, this case study looked at and compared those who did and those who didn't. And they found that the mothers that smoked actually had higher health markers than those who didn't. And had it, better health markers. Yeah, yeah. They had better health markers because wow. it, they, for them, in the life that they led, it massively reduced their stress levels. Fuck. And right. there is there are so many things that can impact health that actually the things that we think are so straightforward right. for certain populations can can be actually the complete opposite. And so right. for them, that was perhaps the only time they had in their day that was uh, outside. Mm. It was the only time they had for their day that was quiet, that mm. was away from their kids that was a time to actually breathe and relax, which mm. may have brought down their blood pressure during that time. There, there were all sorts of reasons why, and you know, it was a time when they could talk to other people in a context mm. that wasn't work. So it was social connection. Social connection. And, and so all of those factors actually meant that they had better health markers than those that didn't. Wow. And so you're kind of going, as a, as, a, as a doctor, what am I meant to say to that? Right. Am, am I meant, uh, like, yeah. if I say, you know, the NHS has a stop smoking service that I can refer you to, um, because make every contact. But then you'll be more stressed, have less <laughs> yeah. social connection. Yeah. And that's, you know, but, but that's my job, right? Make, right. make, make every contact count. Um, right. I should be mentioning stop smoking at every single consultation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's my job. Um, and, so, and, and so when I heard that, I just, I, I was like, okay Mm. it's like this i'd never actually seen it in that way before right in terms of and i know it's not directly nutrition related but it was in terms of this advice that we think is so simple eat more fruit and veg Mm. eat less animal products if you can Mm. don't smoke Mm. exercise more Mm. it's it means nothing if we don't understand the place that someone is at right within the social standing they have in society right. it means absolutely nothing and it's right and it is almost insulting for us to be giving out this advice when we have the ability to see mm. someone one-to-one yeah and we just and we don't take into consideration right. anything else that may be there and, yeah and it and it's it, it has really it, it's really created it. a and new I, thought process i was i was thinking a lot about about that recently because i've been seeing a lot of um when people interpret studies i've been seeing just this real fundamental misunderstanding of relative risk and people just think it's just a percentage you express so well if if the relative risk for uh cancer because of consuming something or or heart disease because of consuming, do you remember that one rasher a day thing, twenty four percent. Well, then people are like, "Well, you look at the baseline risk for heart disease, and then, well, actually, all it means is that one in four, you know, was one in five say uh, would get heart, but and and the increase was to three in five or something like that." So, but what what I what I was trying to articulate was, yes, that's true. At the absolute increase in risk can often seem less than the percentage can make it seem higher. 
but that's not what relative risk is relative to the population yeah, studied. To the person, to so the it's relative yeah. to that population. So relative risk is saying that the risk given this population, given their traits and characteristics, this is the relative risk increase, right? And so it's it, it it's appreciating that you know that 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 relativity element to if we're looking at any disease outcome, you know, if it's set against the backdrop of really high levels of stress, lack of time, money worries, um, professional stress in the terms, in the context of maybe having to work more than one job, um, and all of these variables, you know, the, 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 the relative risk of smoking cigarettes may be somewhat less yeah. in that context because yeah. you have all of these other lifestyle variables that are probably going to result in a chronic lifestyle disease anyway, um, and I, you know, and, and I'm not saying that lightly, I'm saying that in the tragedy of the wider circumstance. Yeah. Now, again, that doesn't mean that the advice to, to, to not smoke is of course bad not. advice. Of course not, no. All it is, just, is a, is a prompt or a bit of a nudge to, to, to take some of this stuff in consideration that we should be at least aware of it. It doesn't change the truth of the matter for a lot of these things. It doesn't change just because some people can't access fruit and veg. It doesn't change the fact that it's good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is important to know if they have the ability to access right. before we insult them by just telling them, do I just, that's the only advice yeah. we give them. Oh, they obviously don't know that fruits and vegetables are good. We'll yeah. just, ed- we'll, we'll just, we'll just educate. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, no. it's insulting. It is um, insulting. Take two was much better than take one. Yeah, take one uh, <laughs> really went down the neoliberal rabbit hole. <laughs> that was that was good though. I'm yeah. I'm glad that we I'm glad that we stopped that and re-recorded that. I'm so glad, much protest from you. You looked to me like well, what? No, it's fine. Stop. It's just because I'm t- no. It was. Yeah. I'm glad we re-recorded that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that as an ending to season one. I do of our and I hope maybe cut that through nutrition without podcast. having to feel like we need to solve these issues not mm. we as mm. in us sitting here we as in y- y- you know you as listener no doubt falling into the same relative sociodemographic bracket that that we do and i don't think that's yeah. a, a, a you know a, a stretch as an inference but it's about perhaps collectively now all being more mindful of these issues having the conversation in your space as well so for a lot of healthcare professionals listening not just factoring them in but actually having this conversation with others that may not be considering it Mm. um and the more we can try and start to bring about a critical mass uh acknowledging these issues you know the, the more we can make it you know a ballot box agenda and you know start to hopefully press agitate lobby and otherwise for the kind of political solutions that will ultimately make a difference in society but so this se- is a season long-term two is going to be how to how to lobby your politician for change uh, <laughs> no, it's, no not. it's not but but i'm glad that we ended season one in that way because Same. because we want to move on to talking about as we said certain conditions and and almost kind of have a literature review yeah. in podcast form of what do we know at, mm-hmm. at the moment about this stuff mm-hmm. where is the nuance here what is the evidence for and against these kind of things mm-hmm. and the things that we've talked about during this season uh, in our opinion are all really important things to be 
acknowledging of they're the context to exactly yeah. to be yeah. able to have that that's the background yeah. to be able to then have these conversations and put them into practice mm-hmm. in a way that is appropriate yeah w- w- without having to revisit these issues every time yeah um because you know w- what can happen in, certainly in nutrition now is you know we might say we might start talking about uh diabetes for example and nutritional determinants and all that stuff and then someone comes out to beat you with the socioeconomic you know kind of tag and it's it's again we're saying that we have considered these and and, and will con- con- continue to consider those issues yeah. but those in, are a given those with are all the of the given. conversations yeah. we have in the they're future the, they're the continuous variable here yeah and I'm sure we will probably mention them in the yeah, future yeah, absolutely. with certain things that are specifically important right. with it. Yeah. But it, just because we don't necessarily mention it with everything, it doesn't mean that we are not don't, considering it. Yeah, that yeah. we're not acknowledging yeah. it as a factor in all of these conversations. Of yeah. uh, just like nutritional identity is a factor in all of these conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just like the different rhetoric that people use is a, is a, is a factor in all of these different con- conversations. Yeah. Just like the fact that people don't necessarily know how to read nutritional science literature mm-hmm. is a factor in all of these conversations yeah, and right. we'll bring individual ones up when it comes when, to it when, when it's, it's appropriate, appropriate yeah. but yeah. It, that's that that's our point and i yeah i've enjoyed i've enjoyed, I've season, enjoyed one. season one i hope we don't leave it too long for season two but no. we'll we'll have some little uh probably a few q and a's in the meantime yeah. whilst we get season two up and yeah. running so and if you have been enjoying this and this is the first time i've said this but do leave if you can a written review because it does seem that the only people that go out of their way to write reviews are people that want to rant <laughs> in a negative sense well look um, negative feedback that's, that's is fine can be helpful but there just seems to be a disconnect between the written negativity yeah. and the actual star rating and i'm just <laughs> like well if people are liking this it's just at least say leave alan a hug in written form please i don't need a hug i'm devoid of emotion no you're not <laughs> you're not that communist <laughs> no thank so, you for listening so yeah thank you for joining us um we will be back in uh six years time with season two uh <laughs> no, it'll be a bit quicker than that. we're waiting for the game of thrones to write his last book <laughs> and then we'll come out with season two <laughs> <laughs> we'll be we'll be quicker we'll be quicker we will uh but thank you for joining us and we will see you next time uh still without our theme tune probably mm-hmm no theme tune.